Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we're going to be talking about what is holiness. What is holiness as found in the Bible and in ancient Semitic religion? Let's turn to Genesis 28. There's an interesting scene that we come across. This is Jacob's dream. Jacob is leaving Beersheba and going towards Haran. He is put into a slumber, very critical to a little bit later. Uh, he takes a stone and he puts it under his head and goes to sleep. And then he starts dreaming and then he dreamed and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth and the top of it reached to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Let's scroll down and see what happens here. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place. The Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. And then he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. His dream showed him a ladder by which angels gain access to the world from heaven and vice versa gain access to heaven from the world there's a portal then he's saying this is the location of that portal this is god's territory this is god's land god is in this place this is an important site so what does he do so early in the morning jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it this is something we see again and again in the bible when people have a personal experience with god they create a shrine, they create an altar, they create a pillar, and they often anoint that. Let's see what Abraham does on Mount Sinai. In Exodus 24, we find Moses, he's getting done conversing with God on Mount Sinai with Israel. And it says this, And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. He's anointing this altar with blood. This is not the first time Moses has been to Mount Sinai. Back in Exodus 3, we find him also on Mount Sinai. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. The mountain of God, huh? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, I am here. Then he said, Do not come near. Take off your sandals, off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Holy ground. The mountain of God is holy ground. 
Fast forward to Deuteronomy 33 when Moses is handing out blessings. There's a reference to Yahweh as the God who dwells in the bush. It says, and of Joseph, he said, blessed by the Lord be his land. Fast forward to verse 16. With the best gifts of the earth and its fullness and favor of him who dwells in the bush. God is called the God who dwells in the bush. Fast forward to 1 Kings 20, 28. This is the Assyrians. They say this. And a man of God came near and said to the king of Israel, Thus says the Lord, because the Assyrians have said, The Lord is a God of the hills, but he is not a God of the valleys. Therefore I will give all this great multitude into your hand, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. The Assyrians, their perception of gods are gods are tied to various territories. And Yahweh is the God of the hills. They do not prevail in warfare, in combat, in the hills, because there's a fighting bonus given to whichever army occupies the land of the God, who worships the God on whose land they are fighting, they get the fighting bonus. So the Assyrians want to fight in the valleys where they think Yahweh does not have power. This verse is Yahweh turning that on its head and showing to the Assyrians that he owns this valley as well. But notice the perception, God tied to the land. Fast forward again, we are in Isaiah. It states this in 1916. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. Fast forward. Verse 19. In that day, there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar of the Lord at its border. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. We find another altar. We find it tied to the land. We see it as a sign of conquest. The more territory under Yahweh's sovereignty, we find these pillars. These pillars mean closeness with the land. So right now we're talking about God's connection to physical land, tracts of land. We see in the Bethel incident where there's a portal, a gateway between the divine realm and the material realm, which is used to transition between one another. We find the holy mountain, the mountain of God. God is often associated with holy mountains. Holy mountain is, uh, you just do a search on mountain throughout, throughout the Bible, you'll see all sorts of references to God's mountain. Often people pray towards that mountain to pray to God. We're looking at the book, The Lectures on the Religion of the Semites. This is by W. Robertson Smith. These are free books that you can find online. Very much a survey of ancient Semite belief, not necessarily limited to the Israelites, but to all Semites in general. There are a lot of interesting takeaways from this book, but the one I'm going to focus on today is the conception of holiness, a holiness which is tied to the land. Let's read what he says. That the gods haunted, which means frequented, certain spots which in consequence of this were holy places and fit places of worship was to the ancients not a theory but a matter of fact. Handed down by tradition from one generation to another and accepted with unquestioning faith. Accordingly, we find that new sanctuaries can be formed and new altars or temples erected Think back to our Genesis examples. Only where the Godhead has given unmistakable evidence of his presence 
All that is necessary to constitute a Semitic sanctuary is a precedent. It is assumed that where the God has once manifest himself and shown favor to his worshipers, he will do so again. And when the precedent has been strengthened by frequent repetition, the holiness of the place is fully established. Thus, in earlier parts of the Old Testament, a theophany is always taken to be good reason for sacrificing on the spot. The deity has manifest himself either visibly or by some mighty deed, and therefore an act of worship cannot be out of place. Saul builds an altar on the site of his victory over the Philistines. The patriarchs found sanctuaries on the spot where the deity has appeared to them. Gideon and Manoah present an offering where they have received a divine message. Even in the Hebrew religion, God is not equally near at all places and all times, and when a man is brought face to face with them, he seizes the opportunity for an act of ritual homage. Notice this linkage to the land that he's pointing out that we saw in our quick survey of various biblical passages where there are certain places which are more holy or have more connection with God than other places. Note this concept that God is not equally everywhere at all times. It's not the modern concept of omnipresence. God is everywhere equally in all things. No, there are certain places which have a special presence of God and other places which do not. The closer a place is to God, the more holy that is. Smith continues, But the ordinary practices of religion are not dependent on extraordinary manifestations of the divine presence. They proceed on the assumption that there are fixed places where the deity has appeared in the past and may be expected to appear again. He starts talking about our Jacob incident. When Jacob has his dream of a divine apparition at Bethel, he concludes not merely that Jehovah is present there at the moment, but that the place is the house of God, quote, the gate of heaven, unquote. And according to Bethel, continued to be regarded as a sanctuary of the first class down to captivity. In like manner, all the places where the patriarchs were recorded to have worshipped or where God appeared to them figure as traditional holy places in the latter history, and at least one of them, that of Mamre, was a notable sanctuary down to Christian times. We are entitled to use these facts as illustrative of Semitic religion in general, and not of the distinctive features of the spiritual religion of the Old Testament, for the worship of Bethel, Shechem, Beersheba, and other patriarchal holy places was mingled with Canaanite elements and is regarded as idolatrous by the prophets. What he's referring to here is the idea that we find in the Old Testament that worship of Yahweh used to be distributed to various high places. There's different pillars. We, we saw the pillar being set up in the case of Jacob. Different high places had different pillars, and not all of them were to other gods. Some of them were to Yahweh. So Yahweh was being worshipped at various places at various times in various ways. We see a concerted effort by the prophets in order to consolidate religion into one place of worship. That would be Jerusalem, the, the holy mount, uh, the temple mount, the holy of holies, where God gives a special presence. Let's switch over to Retta Aslan's book and see what he says about the temple. The entire liturgy is performed in front of the temple's innermost court, the holy of holies a gold-plated columnar sanctuary at the very heart of the temple complex. The Holy of Holies is the highest point in all of Jerusalem. Its doors are draped in purple and scarlet tapestries, embroidered with a zodiac wheel and a panorama of the heavens. This is where the glory of God physically dwells. 
It is the meeting point between the earthly and the heavenly realms, the center of all creation. The Ark of the Covenant, containing the commandments of God, once stood here, but was lost long ago. There is now nothing inside the sanctuary. It is a vast, empty space that serves as a conduit for the presence of God. When Israel was being conquered by the Romans, they burst into the Holy of Holies. This is my own commentary here. And they found nothing, and which was very confusing to them because they were used to mystery religions. In mystery religions, you had a cultic, cultic object, and that was put in their most holy places. Maybe if you're in a Bacchic religion, it was a grain of wheat that you would contemplate, and that will tell you the meaning of life. But the Israelites had no cultic object, an object of uh, a focus item, as you might say, in their Holy of Holies. It was an empty place, which confused the Romans bursting in. There is now nothing inside the sanctuary. It is a vast, empty space that serves as the conduit for the presence of God, channeling his divine spirit from the heavens, flowing it out in concentric waves across the temple's chambers, through the court of the priests, the court of the Israelites, the court of the women, and the court of the Gentiles, over the temple's portioed walls, down into the city of Jerusalem, across the Judean countryside to Samaria, and Umidia, Perea, Galilee, through the boundless empire of the mighty Rome, and on to the rest of the world, to all the peoples and nations, all of them, Jew and Gentile alike, nourished and sustained by the spirit of the Lord of the creation, a spirit that has one sole source and no other, the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, tucked within the temple in the ancient city of Jerusalem. This is from Zealot, Life and Times of Jesus of Nazareth. And Aslan, uh, he's a terrible human being, terrible human being, but uh, he's a good scholar. And uh, he, he notices that, that the physical location, the Holy of Holies, its purpose on earth is that conduit between the physical and the divine. That's the center of all focus of religion. Especially in the time of uh, the Old Testament before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Back to Smith, uh, we need to scroll down a little bit. And he, he does make clear that uh, Jehovah is not tied to one place more than another. But he is not to be found except in the places where, quote, he has set a memorial of his name, unquote. And in these he, quote, comes to his worshipers and blesses them. Exodus 20, 24. Let's turn there. This passage starts in Exodus 20, 22, And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. He's talked with them from heaven. That's an interesting phrase. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make yourselves gods of gold. An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to re be remembered, I will come to you and I will bless you. Notice the locational aspect of this. That in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. God has places where he frequents, and he's going to come to those places and bless them for worshiping at those sites. These are the sites such as we found with Jacob. Scrolling down and back to Smith, he says, It is obvious that the history of Jacob's vision, the idea is not that Jehovah came to Jacob, but that Jacob was unconsciously guided to the place where there already was a ladder set between earth and heaven, and where, therefore, the Godhead was particularly accessible. Precisely similar to this is the Old Testament conception of Sinai at Horeb, 
the Mount of God, and we've covered this passage already. It is clear that in Exodus 3, the ground about the burning bush does not become holy because God has appeared to Moses. On the contrary, the the theophany takes place there because it is holy ground, Jehovah's habitual dwelling place. In Exodus 19.4, when Jehovah at Sinai says that he has brought the Israelites unto himself, the meaning is that he has brought them to the Mount of God, And long after the establishment of the Hebrews in Canaan, poets and prophets describe Jehovah when he comes to help his people as marching from Sinai in thunder, cloud, and storm. Remember, they pray towards this mountain. This is a mountain of God. Which doesn't mean that that's his only abode. That's the only place he ever lives or resides. Uh, Nothing like that. But that is a divine place, a place where he frequents. This is a very strange idea to modern Christians. Christians tend to be Uh, Very uh, individual-based, that we all have uh, these personal connections to God wherever we are, always equal in the same place. There's no location-based relationships that we we conceive of. There's no one place that's more holy than the other. Everything is equally as holy. But that's that's not the biblical conception. There, There are land ties that we see throughout the Bible. This also gives us a pretty good hint, a pretty good grasp of what it means to be holy. Holiness is not a state of righteousness because land can be holy. There could be days that are holy. There could be objects that are holy, people that are holy. Um, And he gives an example uh, somewhere in this book, I I don't know the reference offhand, where there's Canaanites and they're holy, but they're holy despicable people even by heathen standards. They're just holy by nature of their relationship to the God that they're serving. It's, it's a proximity holiness. Smith writes, The distinction between what is holy and what is common is one of the most important things in ancient religion, but also one which is very difficult to grasp precisely because its interpretation varied from age to age with the general progress of religious thought. He adds that uh, the idea of uh, linking holiness with uh, moral purity, that kind of started with Isaiah. We see a lot of that throughout the New Testament, especially when when the New Testament authors are commanding us to be holy. Uh, Often often it's uh, this serving God, this, this seeking God with an effort to purify your life of sin, to shed all your sin. So it's not quite clear to me that holiness is inherently tied to morality. Uh, Instead, morality is just a side effect of seeking and becoming close to God, that that's why you're purging your sin, and that's what makes you more holy. Smith writes, Holy persons were such not in virtue of their character, but in virtue of their race, function, or material consecration. And at the Canaanite shrines, the name of holy was specially appropriated to a class of degraded wretches devoted to the most shameful practices of a corrupt religion, whose life, apart from its connection with the sanctuary, would have been disgraceful, even in, from the standpoint of heathenism. But holiness in antique religion is not mainly an attribute of persons. The gods are holy, and their ministers of whatever kind or grade are holy also, but holy seasons, holy places, holy things, that is, seasons, places, and things that stand in a special relationship to the Godhead and are withdrawn by divine sanction from some or all ordinary uses are equally to be considered in determining what holiness means. Throughout the Bible, uh, ideas of holiness, uh, the Sabbath, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It is a holy day. 
We do not work on the Sabbath. Uh, the, the Israelites don't work on the Sabbath because uh, that's God's day and doing so would violate his day. There's holidays which are holy. There's people which are holy. There's objects such as crowns throughout the Bible which are holy. This holiness designation fits very closely with what this guy's saying here where it's a proximity relationship. It's not a moral attribute necessarily, especially because Objects inherently aren't moral or immoral. They, they don't have moral volition. People do, and people can be holy. Israel was chosen as a holy priest nation, a holy priest nation. This holiness is their designation as a priest nation, God's priests. And because God is holy, their proximity to him makes them holy, despite, despite their moral character. Of course, they they traditionally, throughout the Bible, were very bad people, which doesn't make them not a holy people. They're still a holy people due to their delegated authority, their delegated mission, their delegated taskings from a holy God. Scrolling down, he emphasizes this idea of different places giving more holiness than others. Uh, we read it before. Nay, the holiness of the Godhead itself is manifest to men, not equally at all places, but specifically at those places where the gods are immediately present and from which their activity proceeds. In fact, the idea of holiness comes into prominence whenever the gods come into touch with men. It is not so much a thing that characterizes the gods and the divine things in themselves as the most general notion that governs their relations with humanity, and as these relations are concentrated at particular points of the Earth's surface, it is at these points that we must expect to find the clearest indication of what holiness means. He goes on to talk about uh, holy places, holy things, different ideas of holiness and different Semitic religions, uh, ideas of the taboo. But we're going to switch over to Google and see what Google tells us of what it means to be holy and then see if that lines up with the ideas which have been presented thus far. Here we go, Google. What does holy mean in the Bible? And we got some uh, answers here. There's an ad. What does it mean to be holy? And oh, we'll kind of skip that. Oh, like the, the first hit is uh, JW, uh, Jehovah's Witness site. What does it mean to be holy? So let's let's see what our Jehovah Witness friends, uh, what they say about what it means to be holy. And then we'll grade them, uh, see if they got it right. So what does it mean to be holy? They got a very nice graphic here. They got a probably some sort of graphic guy on the payroll. Very nice. It says to be holy refers to a state of being set apart from defilement. And does it, does it though? That doesn't, that doesn't seem right. I'm not exactly sure where they're getting that. The Hebrew word translated holy comes from a term meaning separate, which could be the, the fallacy of using uh, where the words come from. Like stationary is what, uh, what Joel Hoffman, he points to the origin of the word stationary. It came from the monks selling letterhead at a stationary venue. And then all the letterhead was called stationary. So the, the origin of the word didn't necessarily match up to how the word's actually used in the culture. And this, this could be something like that. But separate, or that, that, that could be the idea that we talked about where it's closer to the divine. It's not part of the common. Thus, what is holy is separated from common use or held sacred, especially by virtue of being clean and pure. 
Really? I, clean it? I, don't, I don't know. Maybe. God is holy to the supreme degree. The Bible says there is no one holy like Jehovah, which doesn't mean that there's there's no one else that are holy. People are described as holy in the Bible. I'm sure other divine agents are considered holy. And usually these comparison statements are God's on another level, like like Wayne Gretzky, uh, he's he's a hockey player. I don't know anything about hockey, and I don't know if Wayne Gretzky's still alive, but uh, there's no one comparable to Wayne Gretzky. All right, he's the he's the famous guy that's the best, or I don't know. But uh, I I'm of course no comparison to him, even though I I could could I put quote marks I could play hockey. I don't think I'd do very good, but he's incomparable, right? Incomparability is a higher level of competency so yeah in the bible god is described as holy incomparably holy he's on another level although there's other agents there's no other actors there's other items and days all in the bible that are called holy we read god therefore rightly sets the standard of what is holy well i don't know if that if if it's a consequence of god's active appointment or if it's just by virtue of the closeness is what holy mean. So it's kind of speculative there, that, that claim. The word holy can be applied to anything that is directly connected to God. Yeah, that sounds about right. Especially things that are set aside for exclusive use in worship. For example, the Bible speaks of holy places. God told Moses near the burning bush. Yeah, we, we talked about that. Holy events. The ancient Israelites worshipped Jehovah at regular religious festivals called holy conventions. Leviticus 23. Holy objects, items used in God's worship at the ancient temple in Jerusalem were called holy utensils. Yeah. Such sacred items were to be treated with great respect, although they were never to be worshipped themselves. Yeah, that makes sense with what we're saying here. Jehovah Witnesses, they write, uh, Can an imperfect person be holy? Yes, God commands Christians, you must be holy because I am holy. 1 Peter 1.16. Let's pull up that reference. Starts in 13. Therefore, gird up your loins of your mind. Be sober. Rest your hope fully in the grace. Uh, as obedient children, not conforming yourself to the former lusts, as in your ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because as written, be holy for I am holy. And if you call on the Father, who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish. So 1 Peter 1 ties the idea of holiness to our conduct. Yeah, the, the better we behave, the more holy we are, the closer we are to God, which could easily fit the conception that we've already drawn out in the Old Testament concept of holiness, in the Semitic concept of holiness, as we've discussed. The Jehovah Witnesses continue, Of course, imperfect humans could never attain to God's perfect standard of holiness. Nevertheless, Humans who obey God's righteous laws can be considered holy and acceptable to God. Romans 12.1. Let's take a look at that reference. This is Paul talking. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove that which is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
Paul's conception seems to be that we conform our life to God. We conform ourselves to the mindset of God. We, we seek to serve God. It's a, it's a lifestyle change. It's a, it's a seeking of God, which makes one holy. Of course, a tie to this is our actions, purging our lives of sin. Back to our JW friends, a person who strives to be holy reflects this in his words and actions. For example, he or she follows the Bible's advice to be holy and abstain from sexual immorality and to become holy yourselves in all your contact. Their reference is 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's start at verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. See, the holiness is tied to our conduct, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we have forewarned you and testified. For God did not call us to uncleanliness, but in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who has also given us the Holy Spirit. So the anti-Calvinist verse here. So God called us to holiness, and then people reject God. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God. This is God's calling to holiness that people reject. God calls, people reject. But this is all a side point. Uh, the idea of holiness being presented here is a conforming your life to God's will, a seeking God. I don't think any of these passages have an individual who's out doing this good works on their own without seeking God. Maybe some some guy in some tribe in Africa who's never heard of God. He's just doing his own thing, and he doesn't care about the spiritual world. He's just naturally a good guy. We'll, we'll say that that guy exists, and that guy's out there. I don't think he's talking about that. I think he's talking about you are holy if you're seeking God and conforming your life to God's vision, God's idea of what a holy life would look like. That's how you become near with God. And I think that's what this holiness is, is nearness to God. You become closer to God. And yet maybe you're a Christian and you maybe your job is uh, you're a stripper or you're a hitman and you go around shooting people on the weekdays and stripping on the weekends. Um, I don't think that's the idea of holiness. I don't think you don't you get to be super holy uh, by not conforming your life to his standards. Not that one's not a Christian if one does those things, but I think holiness is defined by degrees of separation between God and the, the world. You know, Not that one's a Christian if one does such a thing, but I think holiness is defined as proximity to God, and those types of things will create division. It'll, it'll pull us apart or put us not in a place of proximity to God or, or not as close as we could be. Let's finish out our JW article. Could a holy standing with God be lost? Uh, they say, yep, Hebrews, a wicked heart lacking faith by drawing away from a living God. Yeah, that seems like our idea of proximity that we've already established. Misconceptions about being holy. Let's see what they say. Holiness can be attained by self-denial. Yeah, that's a Gnostic idea. And they rightly uh, quote Colossians about this, where Paul's fighting against this idea 
the Gnostics, the Platonists, uh, the, the, the modern philosophy of the day is that you had to deny yourself. You had to not deny all passions of the flesh. Plotinus was an old withered man who, who didn't have anything special and he was always uh, not eating anything and then he died all withered and decayed because he denied all fleshly passion. He, he even rejected a doctor's treatments for his illness. Okay, um, that's not a very practical strategy for living and it's not a biblical standard for holiness. We don't become holy by neglecting the flesh. You don't become holy by pushing away that box of Oreos. You know, you can eat your Oreos. Uh, you can watch movies. There are some people, some Christians, a lot of Baptists are like, you can't go watch these movies. The movies are bad and TV is bad. And I, I don't know. You can watch those things. That's fine. You could do that. You, God wants us to have a good life. God wants us to have fun with our life. That doesn't make us not holy, but we should keep in mind what does make one holy is living our life in pursuit of God and in, in pursuit of the divine and conforming us to his will. That does not mean denial of the physical. That's that's a very Platonic concept. It's, it's not a Christian concept. Celibacy makes one more holy. Remember Jerome was running around Rome and he's converting all these, these uh, young widows to celibacy. All those poor women just being seduced, quote unquote, seduced by his uh, Platonistic ideas. Oh man, uh, I feel sorry for all those ladies there. But that value was pretty hot in early Christianity just because it was a Platonistic value. It was a sign of denial of flesh. A sexual lust or sexual sexual desires and passions, those things are pleasurable. And they thought that you had to minimize the pleasurableness in the body in order to attain to God. Augustine he threw off sex. He, he loved sex when he was a kid. But finally, his, his conversion to Christianity was a conversion away from sex, which involved taking his promised wife and abandoning her, and then taking his mistress, who had a child with him, and abandoning her as well. So a double abandonment was his conversion to Christianity because he was casting off sex. And this is how he thought he's going to attain to a truer state of religion. Not a Christian concept. When you look in the Bible at all these uh, these commands for celibacy or these, these suggestions, they are usually tied to the idea that the apocalypse is going to happen soon and it's going to be so terrible that you're going to wish that you didn't have kids. Yeah, it's, it's just a practicality thing. There's there's sieges that are described in which women eat their children. They eat their children during the siege. It might have been better never to have that child. That's the idea that's being promoted in those verses. It's not a call to celibacy for celibacy's sake. It's a practicality move in, in preparation for this coming apocalypse, which never materialized. Anyways, I give our, our friends, our JW friends, Jehovah Witness friends, uh, we could give them a B plus for their article. They hit a lot of major concepts. A lot of what they said are right with minor speculative elements. So, so in summary, holiness, what we understand from the biblical data is closeness to God. Certain areas, certain items, certain people are holy by their proximity to God. God goes to certain places. God visits certain places. 
uh, more often than other places, and by virtue of his frequenting those locations, those locations become holy. The mountain of God, or mountain of God, that's God's mountain. That's where God frequents. He haunts is the word that is used in the Semitic lectures. God haunts like you have a favorite haunting ground or those are my old haunts you know if you go back to a city you grew grew up in they're places you go to or frequent not necessarily that you live there as the bible says that the the heaven and earth do not contain god he's not going to be tied down by location but those places that are frequented become holy spots they're places which have sanctuaries built on them. They're places of divine reverence. There's that place of, that Jacob identified as the portal between the this world and the divine world, which should give us some conception of their idea of the divine world. We're not living in a platonic dualism between the material and the spiritual. There is overlap. And those places where ha which have more overlap than others those are the holy spaces. Anyways, comments, questions, put that down in the YouTube comments section or start a thread in the God is Open page, Facebook page. Uh, thank you for listening.